Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I am Marilyn Ritchie and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jason Moore. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Jason and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussion. I am Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host Episode 5, our sixth episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the Idea Factory of the Penn Institute for Biomedical Informatics. On the phone, joining us today is co-host Marilyn Ritchie, and sitting next to me is guest host Dr. Moshe Sipper. Moshe, could you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, Jason, uh, Marilyn. Uh, It's great to be here. So... I've been in academia for almost three decades. I went all the way from graduate student to full professor. I'm actually a professor of computer science at Ben-Gurion University in Israel. I've been here on sabbatical for the past three years at Penn's Institute for Biomedical Informatics. Um, I've published close to 200 publications. I've got seven books out there that kind of run the gamut of science, popular science, fiction novels, flash fiction. 25 graduate students and some awards along the way. My main focus these days is on evolutionary computation, a little bit of machine learning and artificial intelligence in general. And I've done all kinds of other things in the past from artificial life through self-replication, cellular automata, robotics, games, and all kinds of other business. Well, thanks, Moshe. It's uh, it's uh, really great to have you with us today, and uh, I think uh, looking forward to our our discussion in a few minutes about evolutionary computation. Um, now on to uh, what we've been up to, Marilyn. What have you been up to since our last podcast? Well, uh, part of the reason that I'm calling in today is because of the COVID-19 pandemic that is spreading across the United States and the world right now. Uh, I think uh, one of the huge benefits of being an informatician in this day and age is that we can get our work done remotely. And so starting earlier this week, my research lab has been pivoting to an entirely remote operation. So my lab currently has 16 members, and this week we have all worked from home. We had our first entirely virtual lab meeting today with 16 of us online. It looked like a screen from the Brady Bunch times two, and uh, we've been trying to figure out what this reality looks like for the next oh, several weeks to a couple of months. Um, I think it's going to be very productive, and in fact, we've been strategizing on how we might capitalize on this in an educational way and started a COVID-19 case study Slack channel where we are tracking our experiences and productivity during this time. We're thinking that we're probably going to learn some lessons about working remotely as well as 
you know, some things that don't work so well for a large group entirely being remote. And so we're going to keep track of that on Slack and then turn it into a publication when we're done. So that's been certainly this week, the highest priority thing has been just figuring out how to be remote and how to make sure my team has everything they need. Prior to this week, I have been traveling a little bit, luckily uh, not to any of the high-risk areas of the world, but I visited Calico Life Sciences two weeks ago, which is a really neat startup um, out in the Bay Area. They are doing some really exciting science, and I'm, I'm interested to keep an eye on what they're doing in the next several years. I also went to Northwestern University and gave a lecture in their Distinguished Life Sciences Lecture Series. Justin Starin invited me and I learned while I was there that this was the first time that that Life Sciences Lecture Series selected an informatics person to give the lecture. So I was honored, but I was also really happy to see that Northwestern is kind of maybe taking a turn and starting to add informatics lectures to their Life Science Series. I think it is important. Um, and then lastly, I am in the midst of reviewing grants. I am on study section, which is uh, a virtual study section now uh, next week. And so my grant reviews are due soon. So I've been busy doing that. So Jason, how about you? What have you been up to since our last podcast? So just so everybody knows, we're recording this on March 11th. And uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is ramping up. And like Marilyn, I am uh, allowing my research laboratory and our institute staff and personnel to start working from home uh, over the next couple days. Um, and I think it's the right thing to do, given we work in a healthcare environment, we interact, we come in contact with patients and healthcare workers just moving through the buildings here at the University of Pennsylvania um, uh, here, here at Penn Medicine. And, um, so I, I think it's the right thing to do. And, uh, it's going to be an interesting experiment to see how productive everybody is working from home the next few weeks. Uh, my anticipation is that the productivity is going to go way up <laughs> without meetings and et cetera. So, uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, I, uh, took a trip, um, before things started getting scary in the last week, about two weeks ago, I was in Malta for a conference called Biostech, which is the 13th international joint conference on biomedical engineering systems and technologies. And it's an aggregation of a couple different conferences, including a bioinformatics conference and a health informatics conference. And we presented three papers at the conference, and I chaired, co-chaired with a couple other people uh, from Dartmouth College a workshop on integrating AI into the clinic, which went really well. Um, so anyway, uh, I think I got that one in just under the wire and have been home for about a week and a half. So, so far, uh, no, no symptoms, which is good. Um, I think we got that out of the way just before things started to heat up globally. Um, and of course I have no travel planned. Um, well, I have travel planned next month, but of course it's not going to happen. Um, I'm, uh, as I mentioned on the last podcast, I'm teaching right now, teaching a special topics in biomedical informatics course. And I just finished teaching a module on artificial intelligence, which was a lot of fun. We covered topics on expert systems, deep learning, automated machine learning, natural language processing. And the last one we did was uh, reading some papers about IBM Watson, which uh, led to a lot of interesting discussion. And one of the things I really love about the class is that uh, the students come from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, and we have a lot of clinicians in the class, a lot of medical residents and fellows, 
Uh, we also have a law student in the class, uh, in addition to some staff and uh, and PhD students. So uh, it's about 18 to 20 students in the class, and um, we've had really, really wonderful discussions. And, and, and the students coming from different backgrounds really contributes to the discussions. Um, I also, over the weekend, reviewed three papers for the annual Genetic and Evolutionary Computation Conference that Moshe and I often go to, which will be held uh, in July in Cancun. Uh, hopefully, the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic is winding down by then, so we can, we can go. It's one of my favorite computer science conferences of the year. I always find that conference to be very stimulating and always come back with lots of ideas for new research directions. Uh, so looking forward to that. And um, I think uh, I think that's it for now. And as I said before, we're uh, in budget season and um, for the Institute and um, busy with other lots of other administrative things. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you're listening to us for the first time, you can find us on the web at bmipodcast.org. You can always send us feedback by email, feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave us feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at bmirpodcast, and we have a Facebook page where you're welcome to leave comments. Be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews will help us improve the podcast, but also helps us improve our visibility. My name is Zach Kohane, and I'm the Marion B. Nelson Professor of Biomedical Informatics and Chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School. You are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is evolutionary computing. Moshe Sipper, our guest host for the day, is an expert in this area, and he will introduce the topic. Moshe? Um, yeah, so evolutionary computation or evolutionary algorithms is an exciting topic, which um, we at the lab and I personally have been involved with for almost three decades. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, first of all, we need to uh, go back to evolutionary theory, which I guess we could pick 1859 as a starting point with the publication of Charles Darwin on the origin of species. It actually started before that, but we don't wanna delve um, at length into the history. Um, so since the days of Charles Darwin, we are well aware of the fact that their evolution takes place in nature, and we are also aware of the mechanism, which is evolution by natural selection. And there are basically a few um, ingredients that we need in order to have evolution. We need a population. Um, we need heredity heredity or inheritance with random variation, and we need some kind of selection, preferably selection of the better individuals, what we call survival of the fittest. Now, about 100 years after um, Charles Darwin, so 
in the 50s and 60s, a bunch of computer scientists uh, came along and said, hey, this evolution thing is a neat idea out in nature. Maybe it can help us um, do some computational stuff. And thus was born the field of evolutionary computation or evolutionary algorithms. Uh, sometimes in the popular press, it is referred to as genetic algorithms. Um, if you're in the field, then genetic algorithms is something a bit more specific, but that's good enough a name as well. Um, now, evolutionary algorithms is not so much, it's not so much a single algorithm as a whole bunch of algorithms, a whole family, if you will, that are based on taking the principles of evolution by natural selection and implementing them within a computational, computational setting. So essentially, an evolutionary algorithm works in two steps. There is an initialization step, and there is uh, a loop, which that's where most of the computation is done. So during the initialization phase, we generate an initial population of individuals randomly. Okay, We call that the first generation or generation zero, and sometimes we just shorten it to gen zero. Note the population. So an evolutionary algorithm as in nature is inherently population-based. Then what we do is we repeat iterations, which we call uh, generations. And what we do each generation is we take each individual in the population and evaluate it for fitness. Uh, then we select the better or more accurately, the fitter ones as parents. And then what we do is we breed new individuals through crossover and mutation operations to give birth to offspring. And that's basically a generation. And we keep doing that, fitness, selection, crossover, mutation, fitness, selection, crossover, mutation, until we're happy as clams and we've got our answer for the problem in question, which is what exactly? Um, well, we can use an evolutionary algorithm to uh, solve essentially any problem we're interested in. So just to think of some kind of... Um, Classic examples, suppose we have a data set, you know, and there are a bunch of those, and that's something we do on a daily basis. Could be a biomedical data set. It has all kinds of features and attributes. Um, and let's say in the simplest case, or maybe more accurately in the minimal case, it's not always simple, but the minimal case is, let's say we have two classes. So we have a bunch of features, maybe clinical, all kinds of clinical uh, measures, and then we have a classification of class zero, class one, uh, absence, presence of disease, okay? That would be a simple setup. So how would we go about solving this uh, with an evolutionary algorithm? So we need a number of things that uh, uh, we gotta get right and set up. And once we have those, we can just, you know, let the computer work. So. First of all, we need to decide how to represent an individual in the population. Um, and for this, we can use essentially anything we want. And almost anything you can think of has actually been used. Well, not anything you can think of because some things haven't been thought of yet, but we can use a lot of things to represent an individual. It can be a neural network, it can be a deep learner, it can be a set of rules, it can be f uh, fuzzy rules, it can be a computational tree, it can be a decision tree, 
Um, can be anything, any kind of data structure that we know in computer science. Once we decide how to represent um, an individual, and the individual in this case will be a model. We're interested in a model that will, say, perform predictions uh, in regards to this data set. So once we have decided how to represent models in our um, population, we need to consider fitness. Those are the two main things with an evolutionary algorithm, uh, representation and fitness. Uh, fitness is also something that we are well aware of. So if we're talking about some biomedical data set, it's basically a quality measure. And the way we measure fitness, it's going to depend on what we want. Do we want simple accuracy? Do we want some kind of balanced accuracy? Because maybe there are a lot more instances of class zero than class one. Uh, maybe we're interested in uh, false negatives and false positives because often those have, uh, uh, often one is more important than the other. So we just got to decide what is uh, the quality that we're interested in and translate that into a function, which we call the fitness function. So now we know how to represent a model, an individual in the population. We know how to do fitness. Those are the two crucial major decisions. Um, then we have some other decisions we have to make. We have to decide how to select the fitter individuals. We usually do this probabilistically. So in nature, it happens probabilistically. In an evolutionary algorithm done on a computer, we could do this deterministically, just take the best ones, uh, which is something we usually don't do. Um, we usually do it probabilistically. Um, and we have to decide how to do what we call genetic variation operators, essentially crossover and mutation. Crossover is, let's take two models, two individuals in the population, combine them and create offspring. Mutation is, let's take a single individual, a single model, tweak it, and we have a mutated individual, okay? Once we have all of these, we can run an evolutionary algorithm. We have a representation. How does a model look like? How does an individual in population look like? We have fitness. Uh, how do you measure quality? We have selection. How do you select the better parents? How do you select parents? Um, we have crossover and mutation. We're good to go. And that is the basic setup of an evolutionary algorithm. Thanks uh, for that uh, great introduction. That was I, I thought it was very clear. Hopefully it was clear for our audience. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've also been interested in evolutionary computing my entire career. I did my PhD at the University of Michigan where John Holland was a professor and he is credited by some as being one of the early developers of genetic algorithms and evolutionary computing methods. And right sort of one of the founding figures of the field, somebody we all looked up to in the early days uh, as this was, uh, no pun intended, evolving. And as a PhD student at Michigan, I was exposed uh, to John Holland and his students. I interacted with his students. We had one of his students uh, that did a joint dissertation project with my lab. And uh, that's how I got interested in evolutionary computing was by interacting with one of the founding figures, which was, in retrospect, was actually pretty exciting. Um, and I took a course in evolutionary computing from Rick Riolo, who was, who was part of the, the team at Michigan that was pushing the boundaries of what these algorithms could do. 
and have spent my entire career now working with these algorithms. And I'm a huge fan. And I think um, now that we're in the data science era, I think I think evolutionary computing ha uh, is ready to move from solving toy problems and being sort of a class of interesting algorithms to explore to actually being useful for solving real world problems. And uh, I know you're going to talk about this in a minute, but I, you know, you and I think very, very much so that evolutionary computing is going to be a, a big part of data science moving forward. I'll, I'll let you say more about that in a second. Um, but I just wanted to say that you know, as an evolutionary computing researcher over the years, um, I've sometimes gotten some criticism for working on evolutionary computing. And, and I just wanted, I made a list here of a few of the things that um, people comment on when you say you do evolutionary computing work. Moshe, maybe you and, and Marilyn, feel free to jump in if you want, uh, could comment on some of these. But uh, the first one is, you know, computer scientists have not liked it because there's not a, a, a good theoretical basis for evolutionary right, computing yeah. uh, because it's kind of a stochastic system, right? So the theory is is more complicated than some simpler algorithms. Um, also, they tend to be computationally expensive, which I would say 10 years ago was a real issue. But today, when now that we have plentiful computing and GPU computing, high-performance computing, is cheap and, and accessible, that's much less of an issue. I really don't think about computing power much anymore when I do evolutionary computing. Um, some people don't like the evolutionary analogy. They just find it kind of, I don't know, a turnoff for some reason. I don't personally understand that, but that's because I come from a biology background. Evolution's really cool and a great problem solver. So uh, I've never seen that as an issue. And then there's the stochasticity of it. But I think work for working on big data problems, I think you have to use stochastic methods. Deterministic methods are just not going to get you to the right answers in big data and complex data. So I don't know, Moshe, do you have any thoughts? And then Marilyn, you can jump in too, maybe in a few minutes. Well, yeah, I've had my share of battles involving evolutionary computing, including getting promoted as a computer scientist who does evolutionary computing. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think um, this may not have, there's one thing that is not so much applicable to scientists, but unfortunately in the general population, evolution is still seen as something very controversial. And it often incites a lot of debate, um, much of it misguided. So I think, it's it's interesting to mention, by the way, uh, Darwin's book is, is, I think it's a must read for any scientist. I read it as a graduate student. A student. It's, uh, it's still a masterpiece. And he actually um, emphasizes that evolution is a scientific theory. And in a number of instances, he said, if such and such is found or is found to happen, my theory falls. As in, scientists, you're welcome to find something better. You're welcome to come along and say that this is no good. But 150 years have passed, and it's still, it's actually in better shape. But yeah, evolution, and I think computer scientists especially, they like closed solutions with proofs and everything. Uh, I think neural networks as well took a lot of heat. And... 
eventually what happened is that it just comes and it's successful, you know, and it, if you don't, if it doesn't come in through the front door, then it sneaks in through the back door. So now every computer science department, they have like one third of their faculty doing machine learning and the other two thirds wishing they had <laughs> they, they, they could join in. Well, I think, and in ten years, it might be the same with evolutionary computation. Well, so. I think we're you know we're squarely in this era of data science now, where uh, you know things are moving so forward so fast, the theory can't possibly keep pace. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the deep learning community that has no theoretical basis, but it's having a lot of success for big data analysis and. And I think this is the, this is, you know, this is, we, Marilyn, you and I talked about this on a previous podcast. I think this is the interesting thing about data science is that data scientists don't care about the theory, right? They're just looking for what, whatever they need to solve a particular problem. And the theoretical basis of, you know, whether it works or why it works is irrelevant. I mean, if you're predicting, if you're predicting what the stock market's going to do and you're making bucket loads of money, who cares what the theory is, right? Your algorithm is working. It's doing what you want it to do. And I think evolutionary computing kind of falls into that, that category of tools that I think are really, really useful and are going to become increasingly useful um, for which there's no theory. I don't know, Marilyn, do you have any comments since you work in this space too? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Moshe, I was sitting here chuckling when you said Neural networks also take a lot of heat because I actually use evolutionary computing to evolve the architecture of neural networks. So I guess I get double heat, um, which is often <laughs> the case, actually. Yeah, I've done um, a bit of that, too. <laughs> yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a good one. Jay Jason, when you commented on uh, some biologists, um, you know, the, the fact that biologists should get behind this strategy because they do think about evolution and they believe in evolution and they understand evolution. I can't tell you how many times people have said, oh, it's so confusing to me. You're using evolution words to talk about a program, but then you're applying it to data and human genetics, which also has evolution. So I can't keep track of what chromosome you're talking about. And I find that baffling. It, are we talking about the person or are we talking about a computer program? They're not, <laughs> mutually, they're not the same thing. They're mutually exclusive. Um, so I have found it, um, I think it's a really important tool to use for things that we're doing in human genetics, but I have to be so specific in the language and very careful when I'm describing things in manuscripts and in talks so that people can follow. Am I talking about crossover at the level of the computer programs chromosome, which is just a bit string of zeros and ones, or am I talking about the human DNA data that I'm working with? But I, I think you're right that as data science moves forward and becomes a growing and, and emerging field, that community does care less about the theory. The reality is we cannot get closed forms solution closed formed solutions because they don't exist. And so things like evolutionary computing will enable us to develop algorithms that can search through the possible space of solutions. And we have to be able to do that. And fortunately, they also have the benefit that you can add knowledge, right? So you can take prior knowledge about biology or about the disease that you're studying or whatever kind of area that you're applying the evolutionary computing. And you can use that to guide your search, to inform your search, to 
base some of the learning off of in that search process. And so that's something that a lot of standard statistical and linear models don't really have that flexibility. And I think that flexibility is going to be essential as the data sets continue to grow as large as they are. Yeah, you know, on on one hand, I really love the metaphor of evolution in evolutionary computing. And as, as a biologist, it makes a huge amount of sense to me. I mean, nature is a phenomenal problem solver. We marvel continuously at how evolution by natural selection has shaped organisms to be highly fit for particular environments, right? I mean, every day we think of, we think about this. Um, on the other hand, I, I think um, the metaphor sometimes gets in the way of communicating what these algorithms are, why they're useful, what they do, the kinds of problems they can solve. And sometimes the metaphor can be a distraction. Sometimes it can be motivational, like it was in my case, and sometimes it can be a distraction and get in the way. So... I think, first of all, what I, I I I encounter that specific problem that Marilyn spoke of less, because as a computer scientist, I get to abuse biological terminology to my heart's content. <laughs> but I've seen it too. That, but yeah, if you're doing an evolutionary algorithm and you're solving some problem in genetics and you say crossover, you have to be very careful. But I think that's just a minor issue of presentation. I think some of the resistance, I think part of the resistance to evolutionary computation, and actually before that, um, neural networks, which today have become deep learning, um, is I think it was Thomas Kuhn, the famous philosopher, 20th century philosopher of science. He says a paradigm shift occurs in science when the old scientists die out. So I think, (laughs) (laughs) so I think some of the resistance is dying out, and uh, but there I have seen my share of resistance to evolutionary computation, which today I think much of it is moot because, like Jason said, it works, and if it works, who cares? All right, I think Moshi's going to move on to. Tell us a little bit more about genetic programming, which is a specific type of evolutionary computing. Yep. So just before I get into that, just I want a couple of minutes just to say that the interest in evolutionary computation that all of us share is not just because of the metaphor. Um, so a little while ago, Jason and I actually published a little editorial in Biodata Mining titled Evolutionary Computation, The Next Major Transition of Artificial Intelligence, question mark. And among others, we noted that evolutionary computation has a lot of advantages over, say, machine learning. Um, you, need, you need less knowledge. Um, on the other hand, if you do have expertise, you can more easily um, imbue the evolutionary algorithm with it. It doesn't need a gradient. It is distributed. Um, there are all kinds of interesting advantages to evolutionary computation. But let's move on to um, a subfield of evolutionary computation, um, genetic programming, uh, often referred to by its acronym GP. So as I said, evolutionary algorithms came about in the 50s or 60s, and GP um, could be traced back to a paper in 1985 in the first conference on genetic algorithms, but it 
made its big name through the work of uh, John Koza, who in the late 80s and early 90s be, uh, published quite a bit about this. So the idea with genetic programming is, if we go back to what we discussed a little while ago, one of, as I mentioned, um, one of the biggest decisions you have to make when you set up an evolutionary algorithm is how to represent your solution, uh, whatever that solution is. If you're solving, you're looking for a model in, uh, to predict over some data set, then you need um, to decide how that model looks like. And mostly in the 50s and 60s and 70s, people used some kind of simple linear string, usually of bits. So usually you just used some kind of bit string. GP comes and basically the, the, the basic message is, let's use something more sophisticated, okay? It's called genetic programming because supposedly the idea is that you are evolving actual programs. However, um, that has to be taken in with a grain of salt because you almost never evolve actual, say, fully functional Python or Java programs. I've got a few papers that actually do that, and it's very complicated, and that's not what we usually do in GP. The idea with GP is, let's take some more sophisticated data structure. It can be a tree. It can be a neural network. It can be a decision tree. It can be um, a fuzzy system. It can be an expert system. It can be many things more sophisticated than the bit strings people used to uh, use. And let's use that. That's basically the essence of uh, GP. And again, some others in the field, field might feel differently, but I feel that's the essence. It's really about a different just representations can be anything. It can be more sophisticated. And one of the main um, one of the main representations we use in GP is something called a tree. Um, you may be familiar with decision trees. Um, what I'm talking about is a computational tree, which is kind of the opposite. So in a decision tree, you start at the top at the root node, you split according to some feature and you work your way down until you get a decision. Okay, this is, I don't know, class zero, class one. A computational tree you actually start at the bottom, what we call the leaves, okay? So you've got these leaves that hang at the bottom of this computational tree. And let's say most often we're talking about a data set, these leaves are simply the features, okay? And then what you do is, you combine these using functions that are actually the internal nodes of this tree. And it can be anything, addition, multiplication, sigmoid, um, whatever. In some cases, you have special functions or adapted to that specific problem. And then you kind of take your features and you combine them in a tree-like fashion with your um, functions until you get all the way up to the root, uh, all the way up to the root and then you have your answer, and that is the answer of, uh, of this um, computational tree. So it's basically computing something, okay? Now, in a sense, it's a program. Is it a fully functional Java or Python program? No, but it is a lot more sophisticated than what people used before GP. And 
This, by the way, what I just described is very popular, this kind of computational tree. It is by no means the only representations representation that is used by uh, GPers or GP um, researchers. So all kinds of other uh, representations have been used. There's something called gene expression programming, something called grammatical evolution, something called linear GP, something called Cartesian GP. People have come up with very interesting and very efficient and very exciting representations. And we do that here too. And all of it falls under the heading of GP. And I would say these days it actually falls under the general heading of evolutionary algorithms. So back in the day, it really was divided into factions. Some people do the bit string, they're GA, genetic algorithms. Some people do the tree, they're genetic programming. But I think these days we are all in the city of brotherly love, <laughs> except maybe those who need to die out. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so that is GP, a very exciting uh, uh, field. Yeah. So uh, thanks for that. I, you know, GP is the the brand, the form of evolutionary computing that I've mostly worked on throughout my career. It's it's um, been most appealing to me because of the flexibility and how you represent the solutions. Um, and I. Uh, really, really like that aspect of it. And I think that's a major advantage of GP over other, say, machine learning methods, is it gives you a tremendous amount of flexibility in how you represent your solutions. Um, and I, I love using um, these, what you called computation trees, um, to do machine learning, because you can give a genetic program uh, a set of any mathematical functions. Uh, as many as you want. Could be arithmetic operators, relational operators, logic operators. You give it a long list, and then you provide your features from your data set, and then let the GP figure out the optimal way to combine them to do a classification or a regression. And I like it because it, you know, that formulation makes many fewer assumptions about the type of model that you're looking for. Your only assumptions are really you know, the mathematical functions that you're feeding it. If you just feed it arithmetic functions, it's going to be limited to what those can do. If you feed it more interesting functions like relational operators, logic operators, it can do more interesting things. And, and it allows you to move away from other, you know, most other machine learning models have a particular uh, model structure that you're limited to, like a decision tree does things in a certain way. And so GP, I think, gives you a lot of flexibility above and beyond a lot of other machine learning methods and certainly above and beyond parametric statistical approaches. So that's always uh, been very appealing to me. And one of the other things I really love about GP is, and again, you know, the evolution metaphor that you described, the crossover operator, imagine trees getting crossed over to generate new trees, which is what happens in genetic programming. Uh, I really like that because biology, if you're using these algorithms to solve biological problems, biology is inherently modular, right? We think about modules. We think about genes as modules. We think about biochemical pathways as modules. And if you're trying to build a model and you want your model to be able to capture that modular structure and the recombinant, the crossover operator that genetic programming uses is able to swap modules in and out from different solutions and recombine, uh, put different modules together. And, and from, as again, from a biology point of view, that's uh, very appealing to me. And just 
just to add to that, uh, like I said, evolutionary computation has many advantages. So, for example, one advantage that I mentioned and is actually even more so with GP is that if you have human expertise, you can um, often, not always, but often fairly easily uh, let GP know. So, for example, you're doing, you have some kind of data set that has all kinds of clinical measures. And as I said, the leaves of the tree, uh, what we call the terminal set is usually the features. And then say you're working with uh, uh, an actual medical doctor and he says, hmm, I see you have height and uh, uh, I see you have height and weight. You know what? I think uh, we can combine them into something called BMI. And then as a GP or I'm going to say, you know what? That's easy. I'll just add that into the terminal set or into the function set. Very easy. And we can try out your idea. Let evolution handle it. If it's good, evolution is going to pick it up. If it's not, it won't. But it's very easy to inject that kind of knowledge. You know, one of the uh, the most impactful um, uh, points in my career was when I read David Goldberg's book, The Design of Innovation. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, David Goldberg was a student of John Hollins, who did a lot of early work on genetic algorithms in, in this space. And he wrote this book called The Design of Innovation. And I think it was published in 2002. And I bought this book and I started reading it. And I initially had no clue what he was talking about in this book. And I put it on my shelf. And then about three years later, I picked it up and read it again. And it started to click. And basically what he says in this book is that the way to get evolutionary algorithms to solve hard problems is you need to know what your building blocks are, and I'll define that in a second. Know what your building blocks are, and then exploit the heck out of them in the algorithm. So his definition of a building block is, is basically something that's useful. So in the feature space, if you're doing machine learning, in the feature space, like you said, body mass index, we know body mass index is a risk factor for heart disease, cancer, other common diseases. And so body mass index is uh, a what he would call a building block, at least from a feature point of view, right? So you know BMI, we all know BMI is important. If you're studying heart disease, BMI is very, very important. So you want your algorithm to know that and you want your algorithm to be able to exploit the fact that BMI is important and something it should pay attention to. So when I when I made that connection, it was like, oh, right, of course, we want to tell our algorithms what we think is important, things that they should definitely pay attention to so they're not lost in the stochasticity of the algorithm, and then teach the algorithm, give it the tools it needs to exploit that and make use of it. And that's basically what, what the essence of Goldberg's book was. And once I realized that, then uh, I was able to go off on a whole new line of research on on doing that, developing genetic programming and other evolutionary algorithms that can... Um, use expert knowledge that we as humans have and use it effectively. All right, should we move on to coevolution? I think you yeah. wanted to say a few words. Um, yeah, so a little bit later in the journal club sec uh, section, I will be talking about an evolutionary algorithm that employs coevolution. Now, Coevolution is actually a very interesting idea. Um, it originates at least with Darwin, maybe before. Um, in his in Origin of Species, Darwin 
spoke of, quote, co-adaptations of organic beings to each other, unquote. So a co-evolutionary algorithm is basically simultaneously evolves two or more populations where, where there is some kind of coupling um, between the fitnesses of these populations. And there are actually three forms of coevolution. Um, it's tightly related to the idea of symbiosis. So we have cooperative or mutualistic coevolution. We have competitive or parasitic. And there's something I didn't know about until a few months ago that's called commensalistic. So in cooperative coevolution, basically you have different species that benefit from each other. Okay, so for example, a bird pollinating and feeding, pollinating a flower and um, feeding from it. In competitive coevolution, what happens to one species harms the other and vice versa. For example, a polar bear and a seal. Okay, um, by the way, I should, if I should be probably make it more precise when I say, when I give these examples, these are actually not examples of coevolution, but of the results of coevolution. Okay, a polar bear and a seal are not coevolving, but their ancestors did. So um, that's competitive. Okay, what happens to one species, bad for the other and vice versa. And then there's something called commensalism, where one, um, this is a lesser known form of symbiosis, where there is one species that gain benefits while the other species um, neither gains any benefit or is harmed. And one example that I found of this is teeny tiny mites that attach themselves to a fly for transport. So the mites, they gain the benefit of transport. The fly doesn't care so much. And there's actually a little interesting, interesting little backstory um, with how I discovered commensalism. So a few months ago, I saw the movie um, Venom with my son. And we come out of it, it's one of those, I think it's either Marvel or DC Comics, I forget which one, and come out of the movie, my son says, does that actually exist in real life? And I said, well, Venom is about this symbiote from outer space that um, turns some guy into a super villain. So real life, not so much. However, let's go into Wikipedia because symbiosis is a thing and went into Wikipedia and, and I'm like, hey, commensalism. I didn't know about that. <laughs> so I credit the movie Venom with, <laughs> with that and my son's curiosity. So what does this have to do with algorithms? So in a coevolutionary algorithm, uh, we basically, as we did with an evolutionary algorithm, being inspired and mimicking evolution in nature, a coevolutionary algorithm also takes these ideas and implements them in a computational setting. So you pick your flavor of coevolution, um, you set up two or more populations. So if it's cooperative coevolution, you need individuals from one population along with individuals from another population. And these individuals combine to get some kind of fitness. So what's good for one is good for the other and vice versa. If it's competitive coevolution, then if individuals in one population attain better fitness than individuals in the other population uh, attain worse fitness. And with commensalism, which 
as far as I know, were the first to employ, you have one population that depends on the other, and the other doesn't care, okay? It just evolves on its own. Um, and these ideas of coevolution and coevolutionary algorithms have been employed to um, great success, okay? Um, they, I think they have gained importance in the past few years, and actually, in nature, everything is coevolution because you never evolve in isolation from everything else. So, and it's not just the static environment that you're evolving. It's also like the sun and I don't know, the, the weather. It's also the other species. That's actually the most dynamic form of coevolution. So thanks, uh, thanks Moshe. I'm, I'm, uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun having you in the lab for your sabbatical and the coevolution work that you've been doing has been really, really fascinating. And uh, it's been an exciting new direction uh, in, in my own evolutionary computing work. So we're looking forward to your discussion of, uh, of uh, an example coevolution paper um, a little bit later. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Okay, thanks, Marilyn. Um, first up, um, I'm sad to report that the SETI at Home project is ending. And there was a tweet from the, the UC Berkeley group that runs SETI at Home uh, that says, thanks to the many volunteers who have helped crunch data for SETI at Home in the last two decades, on March 31st, the project will stop sending out new work to users, but this is not the end of the public engagement in SETI research. And for those of you who don't know, SETI is uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And SETI at home has been around for a long time. It's, um, it's basically a screensaver that downloads data and, and chugs, you know, does some sort of pattern recognition analysis of signals from space to look for signs of intelligence uh, when your computer's not being used. I've never used it myself, but I've definitely had people in the lab over the years that have used it as a screensaver. So I know my own research lab uh, has, has crunched uh, a fair amount of SETI data over, <laughs> over the years. So uh, I think a lot of people are, are, based on the tweets I saw, sad that this is ending. I'm not sure exactly why it's ending. I didn't dig into it that deeply, but uh, the end of an era. Okay. Next up, um, I saw an interesting blog post from Dr. Yashua Bengio, who's a prominent machine learning researcher at the University of Montreal, about changing the machine learning publishing process, which is really dominated by publishing a, a, in computer science proceedings at conferences. And I'm going to quote um, a, a paragraph from his blog um, and the proposal that he has for how we should change this. He says, in the old days, conferences were important to speed up the research cycle and have fast turnaround of ideas. But now we have archive, which plays that role much better. So the main role of conferences, besides the socializing, should be to select work to be highlighted and presented orally to create a diversified offer of the best and most important ideas arising in our community to synchronize researchers around this progress. It doesn't even have to be super recent work. It could be work done in the last one or two years and is only recently picking up steam in terms of impact. The deadline system of conferences creates an incentive to submit half-baked work. 
If there is an implicit soft deadline, then there's an incentive to continue working on the paper until it is better polished rather than submit it too early. In addition, the richer iterative feedback of the journal process should lead to higher quality results at the end of the day. And having our work in journal form would make it easier for machine learning researchers to collaborate with researchers in other disciplines who value journals and not conferences. And that's certainly true in the biomedical domain where journals are our primary publication mechanism and promotion and tenure committees in medical schools typically um, are, are uh, less able to judge the value of computer science conference papers. Um, I thought this was an interesting observation. I, it's certainly true. I know my own research group struggles um, you know, to get papers in for computer science conference deadlines. On one hand, I like the deadlines because it motivates us to get work done. On the other hand, I, I'm sure there are circumstances where the work that we're publishing could have been a little better thought out and a little more polished before we submitted it. I don't know, uh, Moshe and maybe Marilyn, uh, both of you, as uh, in addition to me, publish in computer science conferences. I don't know, what do you think about this idea? Well, I'm reminded of Douglas Adams, who said, I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they fly by. <laughs> but um, actually, this reminds me, many years ago when I was a graduate student, I remember an older physics professor saying um, in his, back in the day, like when in the 50s and 60s, the physicists would go to conferences and he said hardly anybody had a paper. And actually most people didn't even present, only the most prominent or some of selected few, they presented some research, no publication, no paper. It was more a meeting of minds. So this might actually go, might actually be an, 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 a new old idea yeah, of how, back, back yeah, to the, yeah, that's, yeah, back like before the middle of the, I guess, 20th century, that's what conferences were about. It wasn't this race to publish, 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 publish. It was the meeting of, you know, like-minded scientists. Yeah, I don't know. I like and, the idea. And very few of them actually presented even oral presentations. Mm -hmm. And as far as I recall, this was many years ago, he was saying like, we didn't submit papers, we didn't publish proceedings, nothing. We just met up with our fellow scientists. Hmm. Marilyn, what do you think? I like the idea of kind of transitioning to something where instead of that rush to get a conference paper done, that's a full-fledged paper, um, I've seen some of the meetings transition to more like a two-page abstract. And so it's meatier with more details than uh, an abstract at a lot of, you know, life science meetings that have, you know, 500 words or less or 250 words or something like that. They're really short. But then, um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, Jason, and I know we've had this experience too, where you are rushing sometimes to meet the deadline. And so I, I don't think he's wrong when he says sometimes it's, kind of half-baked work. It, we certainly don't strive to submit anything half-baked, but sometimes those deadlines just come up so fast that you get as much done as you can to get it in. And then often you end up turning it into a journal paper that's much richer and meatier. And really that opportunity to present the work at the conference and get feedback, like that's the reason to do it because it is usually cutting edge work and you want that feedback. So 
I don't know. I, and I agree with you, your point about um, promotion and tenure processes in, I don't even know if it's only medical schools. I think also in kind of biological science departments where the focus is not computer science, but you do bioinformatics, even in those departments, it's very hard for the biologists to critically evaluate the CV of somebody that has computer science conferences. So uh, I think I think he's onto something here. And, and I, I really like the idea of maybe not getting rid of them altogether, but going to that more extended abstract, which I think is what Gecko now does, doesn't it? Well, Gecko has a number of tracks. So they have the full-fledged paper, and then they have like late breaking abstracts um but yeah they have both yeah um but yeah i, I don't know it's an interesting idea uh yashua is a, a big name in the field so i'm sure it's going to stimulate a lot of discussion in computer science my guess is nothing's going to change overnight um i think that's the problem by the way he's a big name and the biggest but in this thing it makes sense however um you would have to synchronize it with the entire academic culture right so i mean others have noted how there's been an inflation of you know two decades ago you finished a phd you had a paper and a half these days if you have less than eight you're nobody <laughs> so now you have to go back and explain to everybody no no it's okay that he only has two papers or she only has two papers because we changed the culture <laughs> I, i'm sure there will be unintended consequences of making a big change to the system all right let's move on um uh there was an interesting piece in the LA Times about 200 graduate students from the University of California, Santa Cruz, that went on strike in December, withholding grades and other services in their role as graduate teaching assistants. The students uh, were concerned that they don't make enough money to live in expensive Santa Cruz. And they quote one student in the article as saying, I'm struggling for basic needs such as toilet paper, buying my son milk, said Arjona who pays about $1,700 a month in rent out of $2,200 she receives after taxes. If there's an emergency, I have truly nothing to fall back on. Of course, now with the COVID-19 scare, there's no toilet paper to buy anyway. But, um, but this is, this is uh, you know, kind of a sobering reality, I think, um, especially in some of, our, um, some of our cities in the U.S. that have uh, higher living expenses. Um, as of the end of February, the university fired fired 54 of these students in a very controversial move. Um, I think this is an interesting story. I think a lot of graduate students elsewhere are following this, paying attention to it. I think some are e even emulating the withholding of grades and other services. Um, so I, I don't think we've heard the end of this, but this was a bold move by UC Santa Cruz to, to outright fire these 54 students for, for striking. And on one hand, I can understand why UC Santa Cruz did that. Um, but, um, and, and certainly in, in defense of the university, and I sound like an old professor now, but in defense of the university, um, you know, it's not fair to the undergraduate students who didn't get their grades and didn't get what they needed out of these teaching assistants. I'm, I'm not sure that was the right way to go to make their point. So I think... Perhaps the UC Santa Cruz was justified in doing this. Um, on the other hand, there's no question we don't pay our students enough. And 
you know, if we're going to pay them a salary for being students uh, and for doing a job like being a teaching assistant, we should pay them enough to to live on, especially in in places where the cost of living is high. All right, Marilyn, you have the next news piece. The next news item is from a piece in the Chronicle where they report that Netflix is developing a new series around life as a department chair. The series is starring Sandra Oh, and they are describing it as a dramedy. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what academic academic issues they choose to explore. I both read the article, but then also read the Twitter feed about the article and academics really have a lot to say about this potential show. A lot of kind of joking around and discussion about what topics they're going to cover. Um, a lot of people commenting it's about time that they're making a show about life as an academic and uh, a lot of points about being really glad that they chose this particular actress to star as the department chair. Um, I I'm really excited personally. I love Sandra O. Oh. Uh, she used to be on Grey's Anatomy back in the old days, and uh, it was sad whenever she left the show. So I'm certainly really excited to check it out. Yeah, I think it'll be fun to, to see what they decide to do, how they decide to portray the department chair. Is it the evil, manipulative department chair or the warm and fuzzy slap you on the back uh, department chair. Probably not that one, but uh, <laughs> uh, and, and interesting how they present faculty and the issues that faculty have. I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I definitely will watch it. Okay, next up, um, I saw a tweet from at J-B-O-A-E-R-C-K-E-L, J Borkel from February 27th on the Taxonomy of Academic talk, Talks. He presented 10 stereotypical talk types, one of which I'm guilty of. Um, the first is, there is the, I did a lot of stuff talk, right? Where you present everything <laughs> yeah. you've ever done. There's the number two, the full professor hasn't deleted a slide since 2003 talk. Uh, I think we've all seen that one. Number three, the I know I'm between you and lunch so talk, which I think we're all guilty of at some point or another, being right before lunch. Um, there's the reviewer three is in the audience and this is war talk where you have a, a strong point you're trying to make. Uh, there's the I'm just here to tell jokes talk. Uh, there's the wall of text talk. Uh, number seven is the... I know I'm out of time and I don't respect you talk. <laughs> <laughs> There's the yellow text on blue fade, which is the one I'm guilty of, which I still use blue text. I've just been too lazy to redo all my slides in a new template. Um, there's number nine, the GS gave me these slides and I haven't looked at them until this moment, uh, the graduate student. Uh, and number 10, there's the, a picture's worth 1,000 words, but I'm stingy. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, these are all all too familiar. Yeah, I thought these were so funny. And I kind of caught myself thinking through talks going, oh, gosh, do I do that? Oh, no. Do I, when am I that one? Have I ever done that one? Um, and I will say uh, that number eight, the yellow text on blue fade. And I know you do that. I would caution you, though. 
I made the change several years ago away from that and transitioned to what was recommended, which was black text, white background. Let's just be clean and slick and just do that. And now we're being told that that's abrasive to the eyes. Don't use a white background, do a color background. So you're probably fine that you didn't change your backgrounds because once now I did and I have to change them again to something else. I love the blue background. I mean, why? I mean, it looks nice. And I, I think blue is a pleasant color for, for a lot of people, you know? Anyway, yeah, I, 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 I hate the black text on white background. I agree. I think it's abrasive. And I'm not sure why we moved to that. But anyway, okay, let's move on. Uh, our last news piece of the day. Um, this is an interesting piece I saw in The Guardian from February 27th. It's titled, Why Your Brain Is Not a Computer. And those of us in machine learning and AI tend to think of neurons as simple on-off switches. Of course, this is not how the brain works. And the piece makes this point. They say, and I quote, a neuron is not like a binary switch that can be turned on or off forming a wiring diagram. Instead, neurons respond in an analog way, changing their activity in response to changes in stimulation. The nervous system alters its working by changes in the patterns of activation and networks of cells composed of large numbers of units. It is these networks that channel, shift, and shunt activity. And going on, I quote, by viewing the brain as a computer that passively responds to inputs and processes data, we forget that it is an active organ, part of a body that is intervening in the world, which has an evolutionary past that has shaped its structure and function, and going on, I quote, understanding even the simplest of such networks is currently beyond our grasp. Eve Martyr, a neuroscientist at Brandeis University, has spent much of her career trying to understand how a few dozen, just a few dozen neurons in the lobster's stomach produces a rhythmic grinding. Despite vast amounts of effort and ingenuity, we still cannot predict the effect of changing one component of this tiny network and it is not even a simple brain. So I love this piece because I think it challenges our simplistic thinking about the about how the brain works. Um, I think it also has bearing on how we develop artificial intelligence using uh, the brain as inspiration. Yeah, I I think this was a great piece as well. I, and it 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 gets away from the argument I've had I've heard about neural networks. We talked about those earlier, and people will say oh, but neural networks are such a simplistic representation of how the brain works. We're still learning how the brain works. It, let's just take what we can and use it for AI and computation, but let's keep studying and understand how the brain really works. All right, that's it for our news for the day. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending an email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, thanks, Marilyn. We have uh, one piece of listener feedback today. We received a nice tweet from our friend, Dr. Suba Madhavan, at Suba Madhavan. And she said, I, uh, and she tweeted, uh, enjoyed episode five with my morning exercise today. Thank you for succinctly and clearly addressing the topic of motivating junior faculty for success. I took away many actionable suggestions. So uh, thanks to Suba for suggesting the topic and we're very happy that you found it useful. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion. 
Today our paper is Solution and Fitness Evolution, SAFE, Co-Evolving Solutions and Their Objective uh, by Moshe Sipper. Uh, I'm middle author on this paper and the last author is Ryan Urbanowitz. This was published in the Proceedings of the 2019 European Conference on Genetic Programming and Moshe's the lead author on the paper and he's going to give us a, a brief overview. So um, what we did in this paper, we presented a new kind of co-evolutionary algorithm. We talked about co-evolution a few minutes ago. And the idea is the following. Uh, we used this really cute scenario with a robotic simulator. Robots are always fun. And suppose you want to evolve a robot controller, okay? The brain of the robot. And the objective is for the robot to be able to wander in a maze and get to some specific point. Um, you can think of it as in a more colorful setting. Um, suppose you have some open space office. The robot, the delivery robot is at the door. That's the start position. And it has to deliver a package to some a person at some desk in the open office and it has to move through all of these partitions and we want to evolve its brain so it knows how to navigate uh, the floor plan. So, and, do it, and do it efficiently. And presumably. do it efficiently. So the first thing we did and people have done before us, okay, let's set up an evolutionary algorithm. I'll skip all the uh, nitty gritty details. We set up the simulator, we set up evolution, and we take an individual robot in our population, we let it wander in the open space, okay, all this in simulation. And then it ends up at some point. And now the big question, how do you compute fitness? Well, it seems pretty intuitive. Let's just look at where the robot ended up, and let's look at the distance to where we want it to get to. And the shorter the distance, the better. Um, we want to get to a distance of zero or close enough to zero. However, what happens if you do that, and we did that, is that you get stuck in something called a local minimum in the search space, which in this case is actually, it gets stuck in real life. So think about it. It gets to some desk, and the um, the objective is just behind the partition, so the distance is very small. But to actually get to that desk, it has to walk around a lot of partitions. Walking around means attaining pretty horrible fitness. Evolution doesn't like that, so we're stuck. So what do we do? Well, one idea that has been uh, that other others have done is something called novelty search, which is a neat thing in itself. So the idea is, let's forget about objectives. We just want novel behavior. So for example, in this case, novel behavior is it gets to some desk it has never been to before. That's novel. And how do we know we'll get to our objective? We don't. We just hope that enough novel behavior, we find the objective. So that's one idea. Our idea, and that um, that's how we got to this coevolutionary scenario was, well, maybe it's because that fitness function, which is just this distance, maybe it's incorrect. There is some kind of fitness function out there that is beautiful and perfect. And so what we did was we set up two populations. One population is these evolving robots. The second population is evolving 
fitness functions. And these two are kind of coupled. So a good fitness function will lead the robot to where it has to get to. A good robot will get through the fitness function to where it has to get to. And this was kind of a novel idea, having these two populations, basically solutions and fitness functions co-evolving. And all the details are, of course, in the paper. Yeah, and we'll have a we'll have a link to the paper um, in the show notes. And um, you know, uh, like I said earlier, I was really really happy to have Moshe in the lab and to learn about coevolution. And I, I think this is really, I think it's really important work that you've done uh, in this space with Ryan. And I was happy to be a part of it. Um, I think uh, this idea of coevolution has has really inspired me to think about how how we think about biomedical problems and this idea of coevolving a fitness function is really really interesting. I think I'm I'm hoping that that this paper that you did will open the door to a lot of a lot more interesting research um, in this space and um, probably I think it could be applied to a, a wide wide range of different problems. Yes, uh, we discussed some of that indeed, yep. So Moshe, you mentioned novelty search. Could you explain that for the audience? So um, novelty search is well, is work that was presented about 10 years ago, the first paper. There's been a slew of papers since then. And as I just said, the idea is let's, ignore the objective completely and simply look for novel behavior. Now, depending on the problem, um, the meaning of novel or novel behavior changes, and that actually has to be defined very carefully. So, for example, if you've got a robot and you're looking at the endpoint, where does it end up, then it's very easy to define novel behavior. Novel behavior is simply if I end up somewhere that nobody has been to before. Or more formally, I will look at all the other endpoints and just look at the distance, the average distance to all of them. So the greater that distance, the more novel I am. In other scenarios, it might not always be easy to define novelty. But if you have novelty, if you have a novelty measure, then you can essentially run an evolutionary algorithm unplug your fitness function and sort of plug in your novelty measure. So instead of measuring fitness, you're measuring novelty. And the interesting thing is it has been shown that for all kinds of problems, even though you are not looking um, for a problem solution, you're looking for novelty, not fitness, you still get to that solution faster or more efficiently, or you find a better solution. And it has led to all kinds of philosophical discussions as well, okay, about novelty search in real life, novelty search in, like, in, in, for example, technology, you know, when you just go out and look for something new and all kinds of interesting discussions, specific discussions about, well, this is actually another kind of fitness function. And there are those who say, no, no, it's not fitness at all. It's novelty. Um, so... Um, aside from proving interesting and efficient and solving a slew of problems, it is all, it has also led to many interesting philosophical discussions. So, yeah, I've I've um, 
followed this area over the last 10 years um, with a, a high degree of interest. Um, I'm a big fan of Ken Stanley's work, for example, who's one of the computer scientists that's um, done a lot of work in this space. Uh, I love his pick breeder software, which right. illustrates this. Uh, everybody can Google that. Um, pick breeder is a really nice example of novelty search. Um, and I've thought a lot about how to um, employ this in the biomedical domain. And, you know, when we do machine learning, we're trying to optimize some objective function. So the machine learning algorithm is moving in a particular direction. Um, and I've done a lot of work on how to incorporate expert knowledge into machine learning. Um, you know, we, we talked about uh, in the discussion section about David Goldberg's book, The Design of Innovation, and uh, knowing what your building blocks are and exploiting them. And expert knowledge does that to a large degree. You're telling the computer what you know and telling it to consider it and take advantage of it. Um, and I see novelty search as a completely different approach, right? You're saying, wait a minute, don't, don't go down the path of what we know or where we think you should go. But try try crazy ideas. Try things that we've never thought of. And and I, you know, the the way the reason we do machine learning and AI is to find those unexpected things that we're going to miss using standard approaches. And I think novelty search has a role to play there. Um, I guess you know, actually, it sounds like a great idea. Actually, implementing it, I think, is much more challenging. Um, like you said, is it a fitness function? Is it not? How do you how do you operationalize it in yeah, something it, like an evolutionary algorithm? It's it not. Cannot, it's it has not easy. also been combined with a fitness function. So there's all kinds of um, works out there. But um, the idea itself, just the novelty of the novelty idea, is interesting enough. I think. Yeah. So I think I think your work on coevolution and not and and Stanley and others work uh, others work on um, novelty search. Uh, I think there, there's a lot there for us to move into the biomedical informatics domain, especially in, in machine learning and AI. So um, everybody uh, keep an eye on this space. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is advice for asking questions at conferences. Marilyn will introduce the topic. Great. Thanks, Jason. So this topic came about based on a piece that we saw in Science by Adam Rubin from February 25th. The title is Don't Be That Guy. That is in all caps. A Guide to Asking Non-Stupid Questions During Scientific Talks. Um, the author starts out by reminding us the phrase, there are no stupid questions. And of course, we all heard that when we were in school, you know, probably elementary school, middle school, high school, you always hear this, there are no stupid questions. And it, it's been drilled into our heads. But as the author points out, there actually are stupid questions in science. And he goes on to list some of the examples of these. And I have to admit, I was slightly uncomfortable reading this because I do try to encourage people that I teach to ask questions. Even if they think it might be stupid, ask it anyway, because someone else in the room probably has the same stupid question. And so some of these kind of made me cringe, but, but he really has good points that there are some questions that just everyone in the audience rolls their eyes and like sighs and shrugs. And so... <laughs> 
anyway. All right. So he goes on to list eight of these kind of quote unquote stupid questions. So these are the ones that you should not ask. So number one, the combative question. This is the type of question that puts the speaker into a defensive stance and will defeat the purpose of having a meaningful dialogue. And as someone who has received the combative question, I hate when people do that because as the speaker, I always debate, do I go at it with this person right now? Or do I say, why don't we meet afterwards offline and have a chat? And kind of depends what kind of mood I'm in. <laughs> I don't know. Jason, I, I know you've gotten this one too. Oh yeah. Uh, you, look, look, you're not, you're not doing cutting edge research if you're not getting combative questions. So uh, right. I mean, I think it's to be expected, especially from people who feel threatened by your research. They personally feel threatened for some reason. It doesn't mean it doesn't justify asking the combative question, but I think it's somewhat easy to understand why people do that. Yep. Number two, a special question just for you. A good question at a conference should spark conversation that's informative for the audience and not something only you cares about. Um, this is, in my opinion, one of those situations where you know if you're about to ask the question that you care because you're doing a very similar experiment or it's some really niche topic. And so I generally suggest to, to trainees or to folks to go after the talk and talk to the person. If you know it's something that 99.5% of the room doesn't care about, don't waste the time of the entire audience. Just go talk to the speaker after or send them an email. Number three, the question that ends in a period. These are those questions that they're not even questions. They're just comments where the person you know, pretending to be asking a question is really just demonstrating their knowledge or intelligence. This is the show-off question. This is the one that everyone in the audience rolls their eyes. So if you know that you're getting up just to show the audience how much you know, just stay in your seat. They don't need <laughs> you to do that. And in some ways, I think it makes you look foolish. Yep, absolutely. Uh, number four, Pandora's question. These are the infamous three or four part questions that leave the speaker only able to remember the last one mentioned. I hate these, you know, especially at a conference when they say one question per person when you come to the mic and then somebody will say, I have a question, but it just has a couple of components or a couple of parts. And then they talk for like five minutes asking the question and you're trying to keep listening, but remember what they asked so that you have an answer for it. And then in the end, you're like, Forget I can answer the last one. I, I have no idea what else you asked because you talked for so long. I hate the multi-part question. I, you know, or the or the multiple questions. You know, people will rattle off three questions in a row, and by the time they get through the third one, you've forgotten what the first two are. I mean, it's just uncomfortable for everyone. Especially if yeah. it's a yes no answer in the end, and you're like, they talk for five minutes, and then they're like, yes, yeah, <laughs> right, short answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love this. So if you have multiple questions, I guess my advice would be ask one question, let the speaker answer the question. And if the moderator allows you to ask your second question, then ask it. Don't try to cram it in and pretend like it was one question. That's a good idea. Uh, number five, the let me think about this question. This happens when the asker is formulating the question in real time. 
which ends up wasting time for everyone in the audience. Uh, this is where, um, you know, I think some people must have been encouraged at some point in their training to always ask a question. Um, I think any of us who have ever taught a class knows you always have that student, that one student who always asks a question. And a lot of the time they start in a way that they're not even sure what they're going to ask yet, but they just know they have to ask something. So they just kind of start rambling. What I generally do and I encourage people in my group to do is have paper and a pen with them when they're listening to talks and write the question down when they come to it in the talk and then get up and ask the question. Um, if you don't have the question yet, don't get up and start to ask a question. Uh, number six, the question someone else just asked. Instead of sitting down, the asker asks a slightly different version of the same question. Uh, there's nothing wrong with just sitting down. I think people get embarrassed that they're standing there and then the person in front of them just asked it. Just turn around and go sit down. The speaker knows that that's what that means, that they just asked your question. It, I think it's more embarrassing to ask it again. Especially if the speaker says it's still yes. Uh, number yeah. seven, the question that refers to a slide you can't remember. Uh, when a speaker has to click back through their slide deck to try to find the slide that you don't remember, but you want to really be specific about, it's so awkward for everyone in the room. Either write down the slide name or number so that you remember when you get to the mic or go up to them afterwards and talk to them about their slides. Don't make them go through their slide deck, especially if they have animations. There's nothing worse than walking, watching somebody click backwards through animations and slides and having somebody in the audience go, no, before this. Oh, no, no, after this. Oh, that, that one. No, no, wait. It was that one. Just don't do it. Especially if they're the professor that hasn't deleted a slide since 2003. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And then the last question, the question that reveals that you weren't listening. Don't ask questions if you weren't listening. This is the one that sometimes does make me nervous when, when you, even when you're actively listening, sometimes they say something and you go to take a note and then you might miss the next point. And then sometimes it ends up being, wait, did they say that? Or did they not say that? Um, just as a strategy, if I think they might have asked it, but I'm not sure, I will typically either ask the person around me, did they say this or did they address this? Or I will just go talk to them afterwards. I really very much as a person in the audience don't want to waste the time of the other members of the audience. And so, um, you know, it's not even as much that I'm embarrassed that I've asked something they said or already. It's, I just don't want to waste everybody else's time because I missed the point. I'd rather just ask them later. Um, There's another the type does, of question. Oh, go ahead. The question that shows that you weren't listening. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> nice. The author does go on <laughs> yeah. to say. <laughs> now you got it. <laughs> uh, the author says, um, have you ever asked a question in a seminar and had the speaker begin their reply with, that's a great question? Doesn't that feel amazing? The best questions are asked not because the asker wants to demonstrate their own prowess, but because the talk has ignited in them a general, genuine curiosity. 
So we'll have a link in the show notes to this particular article. Um, I thought it's a lighthearted and fun article, but I, I think it is a good topic to think through because we don't want people to be shy and embarrassed and not ask great questions, but we also want them to ask great questions that do spark conversation, not just with the person who presented, but for other people in the audience and give people something else to think about, not just asking questions to try to make yourself look smart or, or check a box that you asked your seven questions for the day. I don't know. Jason, do you have any other thoughts on the article and this topic? Well, I, I thought it was a great article and it's always just, um, you know, just, just like the, uh, the slides that we talked about earlier, I think, um, you know, these are all great, great for self-reflection, right. And thinking about our own behavior and approach as scientists. But what I would say is that I think for our trainees and junior faculty listening, I think, you know, part of, uh, part of building an academic career and going through the promotion and tenure process is, establishing a national reputation for yourself. And one of the ways you do that is by standing up at a conference and asking a good question. And it's very often at conferences that the moderator will remind you to say your name and your institution before you ask a question. I think that's good practice to get into anyway, because it's kind of expected at conferences that you do that, although a lot of people don't do it. But I would say my advice for junior faculty would be to, um, if you have a good question to ask, to be sure and stand up, go to the microphone, um, say your name, where you're from, and ask your good question following these tips of things not to do, because that helps get your name out there and it helps establish you as a thoughtful person, an engaged person. And um, so I, I think it's just part of good you know, being a good scientist, getting your name out there, engaging other scientists, being part of the community. Um, you know, these, these are all activities that, that we, we all should be doing, but especially trainees who are trying to establish a national reputation. And at the same time, don't do these things. If you stand up at a mic at every conference and you keep doing one of these things, that reputation will stick with you as well. And you don't want your letter writers writing that you're the person who always stands up at a conference and you know does a Pandora's question or does the question that ends in a period. I um, I have several scientists' names in my head that I have repeatedly seen at conferences over the years do one of these things repeatedly. And they do, you know, when when somebody um, is combative or the Pandora question asker, I mean, these things, you know, when 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 you do it over and over again uh, across multiple years, you, you do get a reputation and those people do stick in your head. You don't want to be that person that is stuck in people's oh, heads for, you know, right. for bad behavior. <laughs> that's why it says don't be that guy. Because we all know that guy. Oh, I have a Pandora's person in my mind right now. And every time this person stands up, I think to myself, oh, here we go. <laughs> well, the Schmidhuber, that's the most, in machine learning, there's a pretty prominent machine learning researcher, Jürgen Schmidhuber. And to Schmidhuber, you've been Schmidhuber, there's actually a recognized verb now. 
So <laughs> apparently, yeah, I think I looked it up once in Urban Dictionary, and he's actually there. So the sh- being Schmidt, so he has apparently, he has the, he's in the habit of going, listening to a talk and on machine learning, and then he like raises his hand and says, uh, well, I actually did that in 1990. Oh, yeah, they should add that to the list. Absolutely. I've seen that many times in my career. Oh, yeah. And that's actually a type of uh, a type of question, you know, a type of comment. Oh, but I did that way back when. Right. Let's see. Does that fit into one of these categories? I don't think so. I think that's a that's a new one. Um, that's kind of a defensive question, right? The the uh, asker feels threatened by the work, and or feels like they weren't given appropriate credit for something they they had had been done previously. I think that kind of question is generally not well received. The other one I would add to the list is the person that asked the question before the the slide comes up, right? You know, like ninety five percent of the people in the room know what the next slide's going to be, and somebody will raise their hand and ask a question about the next slide. Right. And and then the speaker says, oh, that's my next slide. And that, you know, that always make, sometimes makes people feel uncomfortable. I was one of my postdocs was giving a talk at a computer science conference and uh, he was on his introductory slide. <laughs> he had literally just read the title of his talk and had said like three words about what he was going to say. And somebody in the in the. <laughs> Somebody in the audience raised their hand and asked a question before he had even started his talk. And and he had to say very politely, well, you know, that's in my introductory slide coming up. <laughs> my only comment oh, would be, that's a, funny. we've all learned the magic word offline. You know, let's take yeah. it offline. Are we going to have to change that now? You know, let's take it online. Take it online. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Any other any other comments about our training topic? I think there's some good some good advice here for junior people to take a look at and internalize as they uh, get their name out there in conferences through asking questions. Okay, it is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Marilyn, do you have any closing remarks? Sure. Um, I guess I would say. The, the biggest thing on my mind, you know, even after this discussion today, uh, it's back to what I mentioned at the beginning um, with what I've been up to lately, which is trying to figure out our new reality in this era of COVID-19 and the pandemic that's happening. Um, as informaticians, I think we're in a really unique position where, number one, we can be thinking a lot about the modeling that's being done as the outbreak spreads. I think there's going to be some really interesting and exciting research that emerges from this situation, both epidemiologic research and some data science research. Um, as a journal editor, you know, I think we've all been keeping an eye out because papers are starting to get submitted and pub- be published in journals pretty quickly with this new strain of virus. Um, but but more importantly, I think one of the key things that I even mentioned at a faculty meeting today with my department is that as informaticians, we are able to be productive from anywhere in the world, which means that I really think it we need to take it upon ourselves to try to adopt that social distancing that we keep hearing about 
as much as humanly possible because a lot of our colleagues, all of the healthcare workers that work at our academic medical centers, the nurses, the clinicians, the front office staff have to be there in order to deal with the patients and bring the patients in and make sure that the patients are all getting care. All of the wet labs that are doing cutting edge edge research, both in microbiology and infectious disease, which is clearly extremely important right now, but also all of the other science that's happening, you know, we don't want science and discovery to stop when things like this happen. And so those folks really do need the capability to be in the lab. And so if really what we need to do is reduce the number of people in any one area so that the spread slows down, I think, you know, informaticians can do their work from a distance. And so I think we should be encouraged to do that. Um, we're having to learn a lot about how to be productive in an interactive way because so much of our creativity does come from the conversations and interactions that we have in the lab. Those you walk down to get a cup of coffee, you bump into one of your postdocs, you end up at a whiteboard, brainstorming, chit-chatting, and that goes away. And Jason, you mentioned earlier, you think productivity will go up because so many meetings go away. And I think that's right. And I think a lot of research would show that productivity tends to go up and creativity tends to go down. When you don't have diverse groups of people in a room talking, you lose some of that creativity. But I also think when people like you and I are in meetings from 8 to 5.30, our creativity also goes down because we have no opportunity to think and read research that's not directly relevant to ours. So So I'm just thinking a lot about how to, as a a professor and an educator and a leader, how to set a good example, how to be productive during this time, make good use of our time, try to teach my students how to navigate things like this. You know, this is the first time something this big has happened since I've been a professor, but uh, I have no doubt that this this won't be the last time that something like, like this happens. And so I think we can learn a lot through this process and be prepared the next time. Yeah. So, um, I agree, Marilyn. Um, it's an interesting time. Um, I, you know, I think if this pandemic forces us to work from home for a couple weeks, I think it'll be fine from a productivity research point of view, at least for those of us that are informaticians, not doing wet lab work or not directly involved in clinic clinical care. I think, I think it'll be a, a good time to focus, to think, to do that extra writing, get that extra grant written. I plan to write, I personally plan to write an extra grant, uh, an extra R01 this year over the next few weeks that I might not otherwise have time to write given I'm in meetings all day. And so that's how I plan to use the extra time. Um, somebody was joking the other day that, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to see a, a bolus of uh, babies born nine months from now, right? With everybody working from home. So there may be a, a baby boom uh, due to the virus. But I think we may see an R01 boom as well. If everybody does what I'm doing, the review panels in the fall are going to be overwhelmed with perhaps an uptick in, in grants. But anyway, um, so... But I think if this goes on for a couple months, I think it could be very disruptive for the reasons that that you mentioned. Um, you know, we do need face time. We do need that interpersonal time with each other to exchange ideas, and uh, doing that virtually just doesn't quite have the same effect as it does in person. Um, and those chance hallway encounters, those those random, you know. 
just walking to lunch today, I went to pick up a sandwich today and I ran into three different people and had hallway conversations. You know, it took me 45 minutes to get a sandwich today because of the hallway conversations. And those just don't, those aren't going to happen while we're sitting at home. So, um, so I think a few weeks, um, it'll be fine. I think if it's a few months, uh, I think it's going to disrupt science uh, research in a, in a big way. So um, I just want to thank uh, Moshe Sipper for coming on the podcast today and telling us, teaching our, our audience a little about evolutionary computing. Hopefully you inspired some people to look into it and do some additional reading and um and uh, also thank you, Moshe, for coming to do a sabbatical with us. It was an extended sabbatical, which really gave us the time to dive deeply into some new research areas. And um, that's been really great for me, really great for my research lab. And I, th I think we've done some really uh, uh, cutting edge work together. Um, and um, so do you have any uh, closing remarks? Um, I'll try to keep it short. You asked me not to go beyond two hours, right? <laughs> Final comments. No, I just want, I just, like you said, Jason, I hope that we manage to convey a little bit of the excitement and potential of the field of evolutionary computation. And it's been fun being on this podcast. And thank you both, Jason and Marilyn, for inviting me as a guest, uh, podcaster. <laughs> All right. Um, that's it for this episode. Again, thanks to Dr. Moshe Sipper for joining us. And um, Marilyn and I are big fans of evolutionary computing. We've worked it on on, uh, on these methods our entire career, and I'm sure we will cover this topic on future podcasts. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you'll be able to find some time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia.